This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. How's the week in science? How's the week in science? Um, well, it's certainly interesting when you see things like the um, University of Chicago wanting to have a whole apartment on race diaspora. And I forget the other the other um, part of the title of the department, but they want to make a whole department there, which is not necessarily a bad thing to have race as a form of scholarship, but they want to do it entirely from a postmodernist perspective and critical theory and what have you. So that's a whole mess. And um, so I think it was Dorian Abbott who finally, um, because he's there at University of Chicago, finally said, nope, 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 I don't think this is a good idea and stand up and gave a big speech on on that. And he's been an interesting case to watch. He's, He's sort of exemplifies what I'm worried about with with science because he's um he was canceled by MIT back in um back in the fall and not for anything with the quality of his work which is what I mean you're supposed to be evaluating and by canceled uh literally he was disinvited from speaking yes yes so he was invited to give MIT's Earth, Atmosphere, and Planetary Sciences, their department, their prestigious Carlson Lecture, um, which he had been invited in 2020, but then COVID. And so he was invited in 2021. And um, then it got around, of course, that he is not a fan of the diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. And Mm -hmm. a cancellation campaign was started. And within a week, I believe the MIT department said, no, we're sorry, we can't do this here because of because of these views. Well, they didn't say because of these views, to be fair to them, but that was the subtext because that was what the mob of people who canceled him were complaining about. Um, but it caused quite an uproar because I, as I understand with the MIT faculty, MIT priding itself on being open to many viewpoints in science and wanting to get into some rigorous scientific discussions, the the faculty were furious at the department leadership. So um, it's prompted a lot of interesting conversations, as I understand it, where they're now trying to figure out free speech and academic freedom and the balance with some of the DEI initiatives, although I'm not sure with the way DEI is being done, if you can actually have that kind of balance. It's a little bit uh, interesting that way. You wonder. Um, But yeah, they've continued on with that. And he's Princeton stepped up, actually, and gave him the uh, gave him the platform. So he was able to present on the time he was originally scheduled to present. But it was Princeton University. It was the Madison program. It wasn't even a science program because Dorian's in in my field. He's a climate scientist. So (laughs) he's a physical climate scientist. And it's just. There is, I attended his lecture, actually. It was really fascinating. He was talking about how, how we can figure out if other planets could possibly sustain life if you, based upon X, Y, Z factors of the climate and where they are in relation to their respective suns in their own solar systems and what have you. So fascinating talk. Um, nothing he should have been canceled over. But um, Dorian's case is really an example of what 
I and, and a lot of STEM professionals are really concerned about when it comes to the imposition of things like critical theory in, in, into science um, and into STEM disciplines, because like with science and those normative principles, you have those four normative principles of science, like you have communality, which sometimes gets referred to as communism, which I'm not (laughs) for obvious reasons. I'm not a fan of communism as a government. So I refer to it by its other name, communality, which is simply to state that scientific knowledge anything generated by scientific research belongs to everybody. It doesn't belong to any one specific group. The mm-hmm. principle of universalism saying that you should judge everything equally on their merits without given regard to um, race, sex, gender, and all the rest. You shouldn't be giving regard to those things. You should be judging work on its merits. Um, simplified extremely, it's, it's essentially that, you know, the uh, anybody can be a scientist kind of thing. Um, there's the principle of, disinterestedness which is to say you do what you do in science and scientific research for the pursuit of the truth not for your own self-interest so it's like if you have a (laughs) i know we all have those kinds of things right and then you and then the organized skepticism principle which is to say everything goes through rigorous review and testing and you critiques and debates and what have you before it's accepted into the broader scientific knowledge of a field um but the organized of, what principle it's called organized skepticism skepticism okay yeah um they were first they were first really put to name they really had a first set of name put to them by robert merton in 1942 and so those are the four main ones but there's also been other um other ones that have been suggested since then and they also have their sort of opposites kind of things. So like the opposite of communality would be operating in absolute secrecy. You, you don't share anything in the world with anyone in your things. And sometimes that happens just because of nature of like national security related issues that come with scientific research. This happens actually in Africa with weather data. It's really surprising. Colleagues of mine work in, work in Africa on weather data, and they have a hard time getting hold of the weather station data because many African countries actually view that data as matters of national security. So it's very hard to get a hold of that information to do any analysis. And then there's only so much you can publish in a peer reviewed journal after that because of the different governments from which you're getting data. So, but when I come back to, it's been my perpetual concern is that a lot of critical theory, critical race theory and all that kind of stuff acts in absolute opposite to all of those things that have been dealt with and that have been part of scientific practice for so long um, that it's really hard to to um, not be concerned, as my case, for what's going to happen when the next generation of scientists approaches it from entirely a postmodernist or critical theory worldview, what is going to happen to science. So when I think about it from the opposite, what's the opposite from critical race theory or critical theory? So critical race theory presumes that only people of color, let's say, have knowledge of what racism is actually experience it every day. Well, that's saying they have specialized knowledge. They're the only ones who can know. That's precisely to the opposite of what communality would be. Um, and they're saying that some people have special knowledge that others don't. So you can't share you can't teach others this kind of information. 
biggest one I see with critical theory is it teaches people actively to judge people differently on the basis of race or sex or gender or what have you. And so that goes completely to the opposite of universalism. Disinterestedness, of course, critical race theory, according to its own books in critical race theory and introduction, they're an activist ideology. So you're automatically violating disinterestedness in that. And, you know, organized skepticism is more difficult, but it the where I think it comes back to is that critical race theory doesn't work well with organized skepticism because you you basically aren't allowed to rigorously critique the lived experiences of someone. You're not allowed to rigorously critique certain things. And organized skepticism demands that you are rigorously critiquing. Um, so that's hmm. kind of the four things. And I worry that you know, coming now from K through 12 and getting into college, students in STEM and students just generally are being taught to do all the things that are the opposite of what makes science what it is. And so I do worry in the future, you know, what is the next generation of scientists going to be like? And are we going to be able to produce the same quality of science? Um, in particular, I think I think it was a poll I saw the other, not a poll, uh, analysis done the other day that I saw where something like the U.S. now ranks like, 25th or 26th in science education, something like that. We're way down from where we used to be. So over the many years since the 70s, I think this is heck of a concern to have, hopefully not with like planes falling falling out of the sky and bridges falling down as a result, right? I think that's the far extreme of what could happen. But... Oh, you think that that's the extreme? You don't think that that's uh, just basically an inevitability? Um, yeah, I don't think that's inevitability. Um, that that's going to absolutely happen. But, and again, I, I apologize. I did have to tweak the microphone again. I just don't know why it won't. Yeah, that's freaking technology, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if if uh, the bridges fall and uh, the, the planes fall, that's one thing. But if we can't even do our Zoom meetings, then we're true and well screwed. And even the <laughs> DEI folk will start to... Oh my gosh! Lean back. But I can I can imagine it happening that somebody makes a breakthrough and 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 you can't critique that person and because they are of X Y Z race or you over critique them now because they are of X Y Z race, um, and it doesn't bode well. And I've heard there be an argument. You know, we can. We, we've we've implemented this over here and it's worked out okay. We've been able to separate social interaction from scientific research. And I don't necessarily buy that argument because it's not like science isn't a part of the societal enterprise and provides a lot to society. So it's not like you can get away from entirely separating the two. We try to, yes, but I don't think you can get away from entirely separating them. You also, can't entirely separate them, I should say. The studies that are done to measure, insofar as that they want to measure the outcomes of what they're doing, which is all about changing outcomes, and then they come up with the outcomes, I don't trust them to be honest with the data if it doesn't work in their favor. And that's what happened at the Evergreen State College. They did a very deep survey of all this data, and they cherry-picked it, and mm. they, they made the the case on a very specific reading of the data mm -hmm. and suppressed everything else. So I know with vested interest and no uh, 
moral or ethical value that precludes uh, biases or precludes that uh, intention to get what you want, why would they stop? I mean, what, what's the what's stopping them from completely decimating the enterprise or at least gutting the institutions that they take over? That's very true. I mean, there's nothing really to stop them unless good people stand up and say no more. And I mean, that's why I'm very thrilled with um, with what happened with MIT, that the faculty finally said enough of this nonsense. And that there's folks like Dorian and Professor Anna Kralov is another one in chemistry that I can think of. She's she's actually, she's very fascinating. She wrote an article, oh goodness, last year called The Peril of Politicizing Science. And it went all over the place, but it was in the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters. Um, but she basically talked about her experience getting her degree in the USSR um, before they collapsed and what that was like and that her her school, whenever her town, whenever it fell out of favor, the name fell out of favor with the party, the whole name changed and all the encyclopedias changed and everything along this line. And she talks about that in the context of what's going on now, because for example, in some physics departments, they won't refer to it as Newton's three laws. They will refer to it as three physical the laws. Rapists, the, the rapists' yeah. three laws, right? Because he, he wrote a rape <laughs> exactly. manual called the Principetica Mathematica, correctly? I don't know how to pronounce it. I believe it. it's that. I forget the name exactly. But, but things like that, they're wiping away the person who actually invented these mathematical physical laws or discovered them, depending on your point of view sometimes. That um, just because that's a white man, you can't have it be a white man that did these things anymore. So we can't talk about that. But mm -hmm. it really destroys the stability of science. Because if you think about what we do, we build upon the past with scientific research, either by refuting an old study or an old theory, or by building upon an old study or an old theory. So if you're suddenly rewriting the past because you dislike it from a cultural perspective or because whomever it was back then had views that you find distasteful, and that's distinctly possible. I mean, Gregor Mendel and Charles Darwin both had views today that we would find utterly, utterly distasteful in the cultural sense, but their works have stood the test of time as scientists. And um, <clears throat> so that's the kind of thing that she writes about, and I share that concern that we're just going to get rid of get rid of what we find distasteful because of the influence of critical theory yeah. and a personal life. And, you know, the personal life may not be what we want it to be, but we shouldn't necessarily get rid of somebody's works because of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a prime example of this is the one, there was one, yeah, it was scientific American that sent shivers down my spine when I read it. And it was a horrific smear job on the part of scientific American of all places. So then it's like 150 years of talking about science, but they ended up publishing this smear piece after E.O. Wilson passed away. He was famed, famed evolutionary biologist. He was amazing. Um, but reading between the lines, the author tried to paint him and everybody else as racist because of his beliefs on certain things. Um, and not even because of his beliefs. He actually spoke openly against the racism of that was in the 60s and 70s um but he had problematic views whatever in the world that means <laughs> to the woke um but what caught my attention was the author then broadened it out to larger 
audience and called for, if you can want to figure this, truth and reconciliation in the scientific record, which was utterly horrifying. <laughs> a, so, a social credit, uh, discredit score, I guess. I guess, I guess so. And to flag anything that was problematic and talking about citational practices to try and remove any problematic material. And, and to broaden, include diversity and uh, leaven the resources from a number of different identities. Mm-hmm. Giving them exactly. Yeah. It was, it was strange. But things like that, you know, when you're supposed to be judging on the merit of something and stuff like that starts to creep in. That's where I really wonder if there's going to be really meritocratic science or even an attempt at it without some folks like what Dorian has done, what MIT has done, Professor Kraylov. And there's another group in Heterodox Academy now that is just all sorts of STEM people who've had enough of of this nonsense influencing their field. So I think the nice thing is that the STEM folks are so much more pragmatic about it and recognize the harms of some woke ideologies woke being the colloquial it's really what postmodernist critical theory there's so many different names but um they recognize the harm that it could have with respect to stem and the teaching of science in in um to the next generation and so they don't want it anymore i think I think it was about 1,500, myself included, who signed on to an open letter demanding that the California mathematics framework be be removed because the the mathematics framework essentially teaches no math. <laughs> There's no math that's taught in that K through 12 education framework. It's all about equity and critical theory and social justice. And mm-hmm. All the example math problems in the framework, it was strange because they talked about there being, they would have teeny tiny bits of math, but then it would devolve into this thing of, well, don't you think this person could, be, that a boy could do this or that a girl could do this? Or you'd bring in the ideology of social justice right there, but you're not teaching math anymore. So a number of, there, yeah, it was about 1,500 STEM people who signed that open letter, myself included, just saying, this is going to wreck a student's chance to get into a STEM career in college into a STEM major and onto a career because you're not actually teaching them basics of math that they need. Well, um, not necessarily because the uh, DEI stuff will be, it's already in the colleges, so they'll accept them and then they won't teach them anything. They'll give them these PhDs. And then after getting the PhD, if the person wants to not fail in the workplace, then they're going to have to go back and actually learn things and pay a bunch of money maybe to learn how to do these equations or whatever, read statistics, let's say. So yeah, th- I think it's really about passing the buck more than anything else. Yeah, I could see that, that it is just about passing the buck. But in either way, it doesn't it doesn't help prepare students for those fields um, and, and getting into those particular fields. And it's like for myself, I'm actually a climate scientist on the on the back end. So, hey, deal with the climate change thing all the time myself. But there's a tremendous amount of calculus and differential equations and, and all sorts of things involved in that field. And when you get into the climate models, it's into computer coding and, and what have you. So Mm -hmm. not being able to work with all of that and understand the logic that goes into it, because there's a tremendous amount of logic alongside, it's going to be really difficult for those folks who really want us to actually do some kind of adaptation or mitigation with respect to climate change. And now the models don't even work either. 
because mm-hmm. you've dropped in a whole bunch of people who don't know how to do the math. And um, yeah, I, I, I've recalled that. I know a colleague of mine has said, said to me, it's just like they couldn't, they, they came into basic medical health class, basics 101 class, uh, statistics for medical health, and none of them could do the mathematics work that they were supposed to be able to do when they came into the class. So it's professors could just pass them off at the same time. I kind of wish they wouldn't to just show the point that there's a heck of a disconnect between the social justice stuff now being taught in K through 12 education and the other, the other stuff being taught in college, um, which I don't know where it's going to end up. I don't like where it's going, but (laughs) I don't know where the breaking point uh, is, but it's pretty easy to have a predictive model of collapse of a number of different institutions. But on another topic related to climate change, there was this tiny little clip taken out of context of a uh, Joe Rogan Mm. uh, interview with Dr. Jordan Peterson. And I didn't listen to the whole thing, but there was this, I think Jordan was trying to make an argument that there are so many different variables in the climate that it's really, really difficult to make these predictive models or to assign values to that. So I'm sure that you being immersed in this, uh, understand how complex it is and what kind of sense we can be making out of this potentially infinitely varied or variant multivariate or oh, it's uh, very multivariate. Yeah. It's in, infinivariate maybe. I mean, it's basically <laughs> there's no end to it. So where have you been concentrating or where has climate science been concentrating to actually make uh, solid predictive models and what are the most solid methods? And then, and then how does that translate into human behavior or do you even worry about human behavior? Is that a variable <laughs> that you're like, I'm not even going to touch that one because it's a whole mm-hmm. other world of pain. So we do actually worry about human behavior in the sense of, larger scale society mostly what what is global society at large going to do with respect to how much emissions and how how often and what types and all these other kinds of factors like that um they form what can be colloquially referred to as just emission scenarios and to say we think over time in the next hundred years or so or even i think they do yeah the ipcc modeling actually does their climate modeling for whatever reason out to 2300, which makes no sense to me to try and do when we're talking about decision-making, but <laughs> I can understand that they're interested in the chaotic flow of the model. I have one minor rule on my channel. If a guest drops an initialism or an abbreviation, they have to actually say what, what oh, those I, 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 Okay, I appreciate that. I absolutely <laughs> appreciate that because I know there's a boatload of acronyms. Yeah, we'll so probably have more, I can tell. Is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Okay. <laughs> but, and um, they try to go out to 2300. Yeah, so far is what I've seen in the, last, okay. um, in the last assessment report. They tried that. Um, it was buried in the details of the report, not in the executive summary, which everybody sees. Um, but they tried that. And so those emission scenarios are the first thing. And that comes to human, that's a whole modeling exercise in and of itself, where you are trying to estimate different scenarios. And they're really what ifs, you know, in the sense of what if humanity does this? Okay, we, we're going to give it this amount of CO2 emissions out at 2100. Or um, 
the way they have done it previously in the most recent generation of climate models that are available, the way they've done it is to consider we're not going to give it necessarily an exact amount of emissions going all the way forward. They can. But what they look at is the amount of emissions that would be needed to get to a certain amount of radiative forcing applied to the atmosphere. So how much heating essentially is applied to the atmosphere Um, measured in energy. It's 8.5 watts per meter squared was the upper end that they used on the last thing. So adding 8.5 watts per meter squared of energy by the end of the century. Okay. And most of that energy is coming from the uh, solar uh, uh, radiation being trapped in the atmosphere, not necessarily what's happening in the atmosphere to produce information. Just... I'm, I'm essentially yeah so, it, it would okay. be the um it would be if you're increasing the amount of fossil fu- um fossil fuel emissions and getting more co2 or methane or other um greenhouse gases into the atmosphere you would have enough to reach that point of having an additional eight and a half watts per meter squared of energy that is retained by the earth's surface and that translates into a certain amount of increase in temperature globally by 2100 that was their high-end sort of doomsday scenario. That was what all the alarmists were going off of at the end of the world kind of thing was that high-end scenario, um, which translates into the three to four degrees Celsius increase in temperature over pre-industrial times. But the bear in mind that's in the global average temperature. When they throw around that three to four degrees Celsius, it's always the global average temperature. It doesn't necessarily translate to exactly what's happening in your part of the world, <laughs> which is where people do get confused. It's it's interesting. I remember Senator Inhofe with the snowball on the on the Senate floor years ago, just like it's snowing outside about global warming um, kind of thing. And it's he was get he it's an easy thing to it's a hard thing to wrap your head around that what we're talking about is the global average temperature when it's in a blizzard outside, like in the Northeast right now. So <laughs> yeah. there is that particular challenge. Um, and then also the differentiation between climate change and then human-caused um, climate change, which is two other big conversations. You have to understand a lot of people without really understanding or having enough of knowledge will say the climate by definition changes. Mm-hmm. It just by definition changes. And that we've gone up and down and up and down over the course of you know, mm-hmm. millennia. And so far as we've recorded it, one year is never the same as any other year. So to what degree is that well, to what degree we're natural is one question, but to what degree the climate change is, is just a part of a cycle or not is right. another open question. And that, I guess that's another variable that you guys contend so, with. Yeah, based upon many, at least in the U.S. now, the station record of observations from weather stations all over the country is in places more than 200 years old in just weather station records. On top of that, you can add um, things like sediment core records from which we can deduce certain things about what was happening in the climate many hundreds of years ago to thousands of years ago. There's ice cores, which also, if you're going into paleoclimate, that's where we start in paleoclimate records is um, based in ice cores. We can actually look at the bubbles of air that were trapped from however many thousands of years ago when the snow fell in the Arctic and with with the different machines that they have on that i'm actually not entirely an expert on that so i'm going to be generalizing a little bit but um you can look at the composition of the atmosphere as represented in that little bubble bubble of air and it's based on different isotopes of oxygen and the prevalence of those isotopes in that bubble of air you can say something about how warm the atmosphere was 
um, at that time, however many thousands of years ago. So the long-term paleoclimate record is something like 18,000 plus odd years that we can pull from different observations. I think it's even longer than that because if I recall correctly, no, yes, it is much longer than that. Um, based on some of the paleoclimate records, there's some of them that go back, I think it's 800,000 years is what they have in the long hockey stick graphic, if I, I remember know. correctly. And and that uh, they're able to extrapolate from these ice cores global temperature, even though mm-hmm. they're just taking it from very local uh, they can, they can extrapolate a lot from just those ice cores and not just one in one place or something like that. They do it all over the place in Greenland or Arctic, uh, in the Arctic and some in Antarctica. So seeing them be consistently the same thing, particularly when you're talking about northern hemisphere versus the southern hemisphere in the record, that's what can give a lot of confidence that, oh, we know that the global temperature was something around this or X degrees different from what it is now. Um, so that gives a lot of confidence in those Obviously, it's not perfectly confident because we're relying on what is the composition of a bubble of air, essentially, and what those isotopes were to say something about mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of years ago. Yeah. Um, and it might have also... just been a penguin fart, and that's what you're <laughs> measuring. You know? Penguin fart captured in a bubble. It's possible. <laughs> it's possible, I suppose. I don't know. That went off the top of my head. But but um, things like that, yeah, you can get into the very long-term record, so... But it's it's at least 200 years of observed record in the United States. And it's many more hundred. It's, I think, at least 300 years or so in Europe because they had the weather equipment measuring for longer. And the other thing you can go off of is historical written records. Benjamin Franklin was known for this and that he kept track when there was a hurricane that came by or. Yeah, it was a hurricane that came by and he watched how the wind knocked down the trees in different directions. And so he picked out that there was this swirl of air that went through um, and knocked down the trees in this wonderful circular pattern when it passed by. So we also rely on those kinds of old historical records written back at the time. It's like when when somebody says, well, my grandfather remembers that the the uh, the uh, the Albemarle Sound in North Carolina froze over in X, Y, Z year. We might have enough data to go back and look or we might rely on other written records and say, oh, yeah, it was definitely cold enough. And I mean, Mm -hmm. Washington crossing the Delaware was another example because that was a freakishly cold year when they actually did that. So I was thinking about it because there was ice in the Delaware River when when Mm -hmm. that happened, when they were crossing the river, according to some of the historical records. And just like that was a really anomalously cold year. And I feel terrible for Washington's men when they did that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Well, they didn't have much uh, with regard to infrastructure themselves. They were very much a pickup army uh, mm-hmm. underfed, underclothed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds. And I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters, May 17th, Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm reading a book about climate change by Neil Stevenson. So it's a fiction book. And he has this interesting scenario where a billionaire is trying to talk a bunch of other billionaires into shooting uh, rockets into the sky filled with sulfur to uh, somehow Uh change the composition of the atmosphere. And there's this one section, it's either from the book or another article, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm skimping on the name of the novel, but it's Neil Stevenson's latest book, 
where he one character in the story is talking about this single eruption of a single um, volcano created such uh, a drastic change in the atmosphere that it actually cooled down the temperature of the world. Mm -hmm. And if we were running these rockets, you know, there's all this science of these rockets shooting Mm -hmm. and stuff. It would be, we would have to be doing it for so long just to do what happened in one day. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is an interesting experiment. Maybe we could just blow up Australia and release enough um, greenhouse gases or something like that to like, you know, to reverse global warming. I don't know. Um, I know that's beyond policy. That's more like geopolitical war, but well, you know. it's yeah, it's so that that is a real thing. It's called geoengineering is what that's referring to. And it's just it's really fascinating. I did a lot more with that in college than I do now, but it's mm-hmm. it it's predicated on the idea because aerosols um, both from volcanoes and from dust and dirt and debris like that, they have a natural cooling effect. They reflect a lot of sunlight back out to space. So the idea was, okay, let's get a lot of these aerosols and pump them into the atmosphere ourselves, and we can reverse we can reverse the uh, effect of global warming, and we'll be fine. From an ethics perspective, some of the alarmistic folks would say that's just sweeping the problem under the rug because you're just giving everybody license to keep spewing out fossil fuels and what have you because you can always pump more aerosols into the atmosphere to cover it up, right? Um, but then there's the other global diplomatic question of who is it that controls the thermostat of earth <laughs> yeah. and then when when you're messing with a complex system you don't know how it's going to shake out so there will be losers and winners and you know mm-hmm. sculpting or there's, a, there's a lot of things that we do know though because i mean getting back to your getting back to jordan peterson's thing about i admittedly i haven't seen that so i don't know exactly what jordan and joe rogan said but um getting back to that and the truth, truthfully, we have actually done a decent job of modeling the atmosphere. Not perfect and decent job of modeling the climate because hmm. the first climate models were actually running in the 1960s. And so we've been able to look at, you know, the early 2000s, how well did what we ran 40 years ago on the, you know, the giant IBM computers and things like that from hidden figures and what have you. Um, yeah. How well did they do in what they were meant to do, which they were meant to go after what's the change in the global average temperature. They weren't designed to predict a snowstorm in D.C. 40 years from then. Um, And they actually did a decent job, according to the studies that we found, that they actually got pretty close to what the year 2000 and the early 2000s ended up being in those analyses. So it's not like we can't do it. And I think where people get confused is that a climate model is a tool. And you can only use a tool for what it's designed to do. But when you try to start using it to do things that it's not designed to do, then you're asking for all sorts of problems because you don't know, does that really work for that? An example is like, yes, you can do global average temperatures and things like that. But folks are now asking, well, that tornado outbreak in December, was that the result of climate change? That's a very localized phenomena. A climate model can't tell you anything about. It's not mm-hmm. designed to do that. We can make some inferences about it, and what they infer as the reason why that happened is not that that specific event was caused by climate change, because that's the realm of weather over climate, but that the mm-hmm. conditions are more have grown more favorable to make those kinds of events more likely to happen. Let's put it that okay. way. So. Yeah. 
when we're so talking it, about climate, we're never when talking about climate and extreme events, it's never climate change caused this event as much as the alarmistic, crazy people would want you to think that. It's more so did this event become more likely because of the change in climate over time? Um, and so that's get into with things like snowstorms or, or tornado outbreaks or even Hurricane Harvey was a fair question there of how much of that rainfall would have been had we'd been in sort of pre-industrial global temperatures. Temperature and extreme rates of rainfall actually do have a really strong relationship. It's been like a warm, humid day where it's been all sorts of moisture. Well, all that moisture has to get rained out somewhere too on top of it. So the warmer the atmosphere, the more the atmosphere can hold in a given area in moisture. And so when it starts raining, it just rains a lot harder. So Okay. So on one uh, level of analysis, acts of God just happen. Crazy crap happens in this world. Disastrous, crazy things happen all the time. And even though the, you know, the human mind makes it bigger or smaller and can't really see beyond it because it's so terrifying. And now we have all these cell phone footage of all this stuff. So it becomes even bigger. But with that said, you could still make a case or have you made a case? Do you favor? Do you think it's reasonable that the way the direction in which the climate is changing is increasing the likelihood of erratic or violent or uh, extreme weather systems. Is that something that we can uh, reasonably say? And uh, there's something that's a little less uh, extreme question, but is it reasonable to assume that we're going to get two inches of sea level over the course of the next hundred years, you know, like, which is, which is a different problem, but it's not the biggest problem in the world. We could just kind of move inland unless we don't have any land left, which I don't know if that's possible. So to the first point with extremes, it really depends on which one you're talking about in terms of how much confidence we have that this is being made more likely or less likely because of climate change. Tornadoes, that's one of those things where we think this, but it's a lot less confident in it because it's such a localized phenomena. When a tornado outbreak tends to happen, it's usually a small area. It doesn't cover more than one or two states or parts of one or two states. Yeah, and it has so, to get going, so it has to have a Right, and and the time scale of tornadoes most of the time is on the order of minutes because a tornado on the ground usually lasts less than five minutes, and it's done. <laughs> okay. in, those, in that five minutes, depending upon where it is, it can cause tremendous amounts of damage and how strong the the outbreak in Kentucky was was wildly abnormal in the sense that that tornado was on the ground for two to three hours, which is extremely rare to see. Yeah, (laughs) it's really, really rare that one. So there's there's probably going to be studies to the nth degree on why the heck that was. But for something like heat waves, um, that has been observably seen to see more heat waves um, going on in the U.S. and more hot temperatures in the summer. But, I know uh, this is a this might be a stupid question, but what's the technical definition of a heat wave? Like, what do we mean by that? <laughs> mm-hmm. So generally, it's a day of three days or more where the high temperature is in the top like ninety fifth percentile of all the high temperatures that occur okay. um, normally. So it's three days or more. In other cases, you may also find that they extend that to the low temperature, too. So it's a three days where the high temperature is really hot and the low temperature is both really is also really hot. So they're both in like 95th percentile. And one of the reasons for that latter definition is people they've been finding on the health side of those studies that folks can 
survive really hot daytime temperatures if the low temperature is cool enough that people recover physically from the stress of the high heat. Um, yeah. And this is, of course, speaking of people who are outside a lot or who are who don't have access to air conditioning or things like that. Your body can recover very easily if the low temperature still is cold enough at night. Mm-hmm. So that's um, that's a human health aspect to it. So there's been some incorporation of that definition, too, including low temperature. But it's generally three days or more where the high temperature is very hot in a given area. Um, and those, and there's, of, it's reasonable to suggest or to conclude that that is the byproduct of the cl- change in our climate. Yeah, that the increase in those, those it, yeah. we can, that's fairly confidently been linked to an increase in the um, global average temperature and climate change more broadly. Or I should say, well, we can get into the human argument versus the not human argument. That's a whole other. <laughs> Just about discussion. cause causality or the cause and uh, response. I you you mentioned earlier the language the language thing where some folks it's like sometimes climate just changes naturally and what have you and that has <laughs> probably been my biggest aggravation in terms of the communications aspect because there's not the clarity the clarification given that what we mean in this current time is that most of what was happening with the change of climate is human driven as opposed to what has been in the past naturally driven the natural oscillations and fluctuations of climate are still there in the background going on even in this current time what we've added onto it since the industrial revolution is the huge amount of human influence so that's still there in over the many hundreds of years now since the industrial revolution yes humans have had quite an impact on the climate not the only thing certainly not the only thing because natural impact is still there so, but there's never any distinction given in the language. And it drives me nuts when I have okay. to talk to people about it because it's just like, oh, goodness. You, which, yeah. which climate change do you mean? The one that's human caused or the one that's happened forever at this point is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's just, it's important in, in explaining and, and just, uh, I guess, for a random passerby listening to this conversation, just getting all the different ducks in a row. And all the questions, like here's just the – my only knowledge of this just comes from just absorbing the discussions in, in pop culture or, you know, in, on the street and stuff like that. Indeed, yeah. Oh, pop culture is another thing. It's just like I, I Oh, did we want to talk about that climate change? Because there's a lot of climate <laughs> going on there. There's some well, heat waves. I mean, two or three days. Have you ever been canceled? It's like a two or three day heat wave. <laughs> it just keeps on going and going and going. I know. But it's – um. No, I did a video on my channel early on, um, on my channel and YouTube early on, on, um, on AOC actually, and where the, where the 2030 thing came from that we have 12 years until the end of the world thing that she started in 2018. I was just like, oh gosh, she, yeah, I think it was in a news report actually that even the authors of the report that had that number in it were like, no, that's not what we meant. The world is not going to end in 2030. So yeah, that that famous clip of her talking about that, I think I don't think I need to say that for either of our audiences. They've probably all seen it and laughed. Um, but where that was drawn from was a real report, and it was again the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They do various reports aside from the big assessment reports every year, and they did one which was basically trying to estimate when they think the increase in global average temperature will be one and a half degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius over pre-industrial 
global average temperature. The thinking being that the thinking, the thinking like being, it. keep it, keep it, <laughs> that um, that at one and a half degrees Celsius, you start having significant problems with ecosystems in different parts of the world, and there's lots of impacts to society, societies, and particularly the most vulnerable. At two degrees Celsius, things start becoming irreversible and all this kind of stuff. So the study was, when do we hit that benchmark? Or how much time do we have to put in CO2 into the atmosphere before you're guaranteed to hit those benchmarks? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by irreversible, are you talking about like logarithmically? It's just going to exponentially after this point, it's going to keep on going or or we just... That, we're um, be in yeah, that world. changes to the climate can will will produce irreversible damage to different ecosystems and societies as a whole. Okay. So um, not necessarily a logarithmic, like temperature is going to keep going off the charts. That's not what's meant here because they still want to, there's still the other scenarios of keeping things below a three or four degrees Celsius increase in global temperatures. But um, let me see here. The, the study itself, the report itself was basically when do they think that's going to happen? And what AOC keyed in on 2030 was the earliest year they thought was possible. What they provided was a range of years from 2030 to 2052, where they thought it was possible. And so she basically took the earliest one there to, basically she was thinking of Green New Deal at the time and promoting the whole thing. Catastrophizing the climate? Essentially, yeah. She was catastrophizing the report, but even the authors of that report had to come out when they come out and state publicly, that's not what the report said. Didn't, of course, get anywhere near as much play as AOC saying the world's going to end in 12 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> but when we when we go into that human climate or the human uh, factor, from your point of view, from what you know, what is the biggest impact that I guess we're doing right now? What's the biggest, what's like the industry or the product or whatever it is that, that has the, the, is the bleeding edge? Is it my car out in the back? Is it, is it however I'm getting all the electricity in here? Is it something that China's doing in order to build my computer? Like what, what part of it connects to me or what am I consuming, participating in that has like mm-hmm. the biggest percentage of influence on that? Mm-hmm. So... I'm going to say, I want to say it's actually, it is a lot of where we get the energy in the electrical grid. Where does that come from is one of the biggest things that we're concerned about in terms of the amount of emissions, what sources do they come from more so than um, transportation. Agriculture though is also a big one. Um, Emissions associated with agriculture, not cows necessarily, but (laughs) cow fart time. Um, Not cow farts. No, 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 no. There's a lot of there's a lot of equipment and processing associated with agricultural production that they also believe drives a lot of a lot of emissions. So there's just the energy grid itself. But there's also the different industries which are 
which pull that energy off the energy grid. So that's a lot of the ways it's broken down is looking at which of those industries is it really more so than just than just which which thing is it the electrical grid is it your car things like that they look at different industries so transportation is one industry agriculture is certainly one that they consider just energy production in general is one part of it they have their own emissions component there actually one mm-hmm. thing you may want to look at um and that's why i'm struggling for it because people think it's just about switching to renewables which renewables won't work long term in my opinion um <laughs> is nuclear a renewable Nuclear is technically not counted as a renewable. No. Okay. For, I'm not 100% sure the reason why that is, but nuclear is not technically counted as a renewable. Um, okay. But the, the thing is, it's not just about the renewables. So there's a great book and website called Project Drawdown, which actually um, what they do as a project is they go in every so often and they rank order solutions their words. I don't think it's necessarily the best choice, but um, for climate change, global warming, um, in terms of how much will this reduce emissions, how much will it take out of the atmosphere? And some of the solutions they found have been actually really been surprising because they'll look at these solutions and they'll rank order them by which one's the best. And if I recall correctly, one of the ones that they found was the best was just changing out your refrigerant system in AC units and and fridges and things like that to something that was more environmentally friendly than the chemicals of Freon and what have you that are currently in them. Hmm. <laughs> so it's something as simple as that. So so everybody should get a swamp cooler. Why not? Is that where we're going? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody even knows what those are. I, used to I truthfully I don't know. So you'd have to tell me what a swamp cooler is. It's a, it's a it's a box you put it in your window. It's you put water in it and then there's just this fan. And it just the the, oh. the cool water just pumps in kind of cool. Oh, yeah, no, it's evaporative cooling that would work, but yeah. not very efficient, but it would work. <laughs> no, no, no. And then, you, then you have little critters in your swamp cooler. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a great thing to go look at as project drawdown because there's a lot of great unorthodox things because they're yeah. I haven't seen them in the media. I haven't seen anybody with the alarm uh, the environmentalist groups or the alarmistic folks talking about these solutions it's all about upending society and changing absolutely everything you know to be have solar solar panels on roofs everywhere and things like that because Mm -hmm. the problem is unfortunately solar is not very efficient um (laughs) Mm -hmm. solar solar is not very energy dense let's put it that way you need a lot of land space to get the same amount of energy that you can get from natural gas or from oil or from a nuclear plant you need a tremendous amount of land Um, and long-term that's not a viable solution when you're thinking about, we have all these other things that we want to use that land for in population growth or in agriculture and food production, or even just to leave natural ecosystems alone and to maintain biodiversity and what have you. Um, Mm. but all those competing interests as population grows on top of it for housing and development, you know, having a giant solar farm in the middle of some place takes away some of that land for those purposes. And the same goes for, for windmills. They're generally not energy dense either. And the only place to put them because they're so expansive is out in the middle of nowhere. So then you have to spend the energy and the money on the lines to get mm-hmm. it to the people who need it. I think nuclear is a very good option, at least in the short term. I would love to see some more new energy technology be created. because there's Like what? Like well, there's fission. been for a few years talk of hydrogen fuel cells, actually. The only problem with them is, of course, you get a nick in it and it explodes. Um, 
And not just a little tiny poop. No, no, like, no, no. Be, be leveling your house, which is a problem. Yeah. Um, but they've talked about that with cars for some time, doing hydrogen fuel cells, because you could capture the water, which is the only byproduct, and use it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, other things, somebody got creative in Europe, actually, and they made a blast furnace that uses plastic and produces water as a byproduct. So it takes care of a plastic problem at the same time. <laughs> wait, wait, the, the only byproduct is water out of plastic? You don't get carbon out of plastic? Like, what, what happens? That's my polymers? understanding, although that was some time ago when I read that, okay. so I don't know yeah. for sure. So don't take okay. my word as gospel okay. on that one. Okay. <laughs> but I would love to see some new energy technologies on that. And I mean, mm-hmm. people, people, it's funny because I'm weird amongst my colleagues in that I'm actually not scared about climate change it's not the thing that keeps me awake at night that i'm fearing it's dei (laughs) critical theory critical theory is your climate change it might be we have 12 more years before the university system devolves i'm in that camp too to be fair (laughs) well because i think of like we just talked about all these solutions that require scientists and technicians and people who are who are trained in these things and yet we're going to screw up all the training with DEI and wokeness at this point. So I'm just like, well, uh, we're, we're going to, we're going to end the world as we know it. Just doing that. No, no, we won't do that. But <laughs> I hope we don't go that far. Well, we, we have to be responsible. Uh, there is, there is climate change. There is ideological shifts on, on the human level. There are bad ideas or ideas that increase the temperature or decrease the cohesion in the very least of, of human societies. And if you're not aware of those things and you think that it's all alarmism to call them out, then I don't know how well you can stand and say, well, human beings can change the uh, the climate, but they can't change their their societies in, in terrible, well, no good, nasty not ways. Not quickly, yeah. anyway. Not as quickly as alarmists yeah. would like us to change society. And, yeah. Like, but now, what about like geo geopolitically uh, speaking? If if you're, uh, I don't know if you're afraid of China or anything like that or any of these other countries and stuff, but um, well, is could, the U S like really the bad person in the room? Are we the, or, or uh, if you go country by country, even if we change ourselves and other countries don't like, does that even matter? You know? Uh, mm-hmm. So thinking about it globally, the human global situation, where do you see change needing to happen, possibly happening or not happening and screwing everybody else over? So it's interesting because, you know, there's the argument of the U.S. is the biggest carbon producer. And then there's the argument of China is the biggest carbon producer. But the truth is they're looking at the same data. They're just looking at it differently. In reality, when you're looking at per capita emissions of CO2, then, yes, the U.S. is the largest number. But when you're looking at total emissions of CO2, that's China, without a doubt, in just the data. Um, And so... In the long run, I'm more concerned about, you know, the to- I would be more concerned about how the total amount of CO2 is going to change, not the per capita amount over time. Um, yeah, sure, we could do more in the U.S. to reduce carbon emissions. That's not the biggest thing that I'm concerned about, though, because we have reduced carbon emissions in the U.S. You can look at that over time in the last 20 odd years or so, at least in particular. Um, but it's China, for sure, really hasn't done a whole lot to reduce their carbon emissions, from what I can tell in the data. And others may dispute that. Fine. I'm totally fine with that. Um, And the other one is India, actually. India is quite 
developing quite well and and you see a decent amount of CO2 production there compared to what it could be. The unfortunate problem is there there's a lot of there's a lot of a desire to do what's called leapfrogging, which is to say let's jump right over CO2 let's jump right over fossil fuels and get all of our developing countries in the world to use um to use renewables right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Societies evolve right alongside their energy and technology development. So you can't necessarily leapfrog over one societal evolution over another. Folks who were doing wood burning or coal burning now have to move into oil and fossil fuels and what have you before they can get to renewables. They've tried the leapfrogging exercise a few places in Africa and what have you. And Michael Schellenberger writes about this in um, Apocalypse Never, actually. Um, and it doesn't work. <laughs> they end up they end up making the countries poorer or or less able to adapt or causing all sorts of problems or in some places just taking the money and running really is the thing there so it's just you end up not helping anybody you're trying to help in the process of trying to get everybody to go straight to renewables but that doesn't work so in a way i wonder if there would be a way to do an acceleration of societal evolution in some of our developing countries so that they get to the same level that we're at with oil and coal and natural gas and then then they can move right along the trail with the rest of us to whatever the next energy is be it renewables or nuclear or some combination or some new technology as not heard of yet mm-hmm. but um yeah if i had to say near term i am not scared of saying it's probably my concern is china for sure um but that doesn't mean you can't do it doesn't mean that there can't be new technologies developed in this country to make things lower too yeah. you know yeah, the the thing is, we talk about geoengineering, or you you mentioned geoengineering. Now we've mentioned social engineering. Can we can we can we screw around with humans on a massive level? Can we screw around with the environment on a massive level? It seems like that always goes awry, or maybe it hasn't. But it always seems to me, and I'm not a historian, so I'm I'm rather ignorant. It's that innovation and kind of free market, whatever that means, kind of like some sort of innovative principle along with your scientific you, you put those four scientific things commandality universalism disinterestedness organized skepticism but actually like taking the knowledge of science pairing it with self-interest and then allowing self-interest in some way set up a system in some way for the system to generate the innovation i think technology innovation is always it's what got us into this mess. It's also what got us out of a lot of other messes. Right. So if we, if we put our eggs in that basket, that gets us back to where we started. How do we save our school system? Because we're not going to have innovation or we're going to fall behind in innovation. If we can't get this, these generations into the innovative mode. How do we save our school system? Uh, um, I, I, truthfully don't know a good answer to that question um aside from starting some new school systems to be honest because there's so many things that are very entrenched and actually with k-12 through schools the person i'd recommend there is deb Philman, who's runs the channel the reason we learn um but she's been talking about k-12 through education and the problems they're in for some time and she and i go back and forth in terms of this is what they're doing in education this is what this is what i think may happen with respect to science in the long term and scientific practice because of the strange things they're doing in education um 
and it's yeah she actually did a, something on her live on her youtube the other night on transformative social emotional learning now is a whole new brand of that which <laughs> yeah no i can go. see where it's coming from there but it's um basically amounted to how do you how do you turn kids to be more focused on the community and the 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 just the just the commune if you will rather than learning and developing themselves into excellent individuals you're focused on what is communally the best which history would show that hasn't worked really well when you're talking about things like the USSR or Mao's China or oh you know. yeah but you bring up uh if you scale it down to the Amish or uh Israel, perhaps the kibbutzes, uh, if that's how you pronounce that, which even them, they did some social experiments out there. They tried to go super communist and everybody shares the child and men and women are all equal. And within a generation, they reverted back to normalized gender roles because nature is what nature is. Nature is hard to hard to mess with. (laughs) But like the Amish, there there are different communities that can operate communally, but that would have to be about a, from my point of Mm -hmm. view, a a narrative-based morality uh, or some sort of religious framework, some broadly religious framework. It can be more secular or less secular, but you have to have some Mm -hmm. sort of story structure that can tie the the stupid people to the smart people, the the children to the elders, and get everybody to work together. If you can Mm -hmm. do that, I don't know if we can do it in our society, in a pluralistic society. Um, We can establish, or we have tried to establish conditions for many of those different groups to interact. And whenever one of those groups try to take over everybody else, we have resisted that up until certain 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 inflection points. I'm sure during the Cold War, uh, the McCarthyism and and the uh, you know the, the very strong you know or even cultural conservatives trying to tell everybody else what to do mm. and what to think, what's right and wrong. We we go through this this Puritanism. I mean, what happened at MIT? Didn't MIT get established by Puritans back in the day? And now those scientists are back there. I'm again. It's a Neil Stevenson book where he talks history. about the he talks about the building of the MIT. But there there are ways of <laughs> It's not all or nothing. That's all I'm trying to say. No, no, no. I, I, I don't disagree. I don't think it's all or nothing. But I, I also think that the things that we're worried about are at this point so entrenched in K through 12 because they were trained in education schools that have since had this yeah. stuff invested in them in the 1970s and onward that mm-hmm. I don't know that you can really get it out of K through 12 public or private schools as they currently are. Um I don't know that homeschooling is entirely the answer to get everybody on mass homeschooling, although I would be interested in seeing more micro schooling come up where groups of parents work together in very small communities to to teach their kids. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of them might be a scientist like myself and can teach science to the kids or, you know, mm-hmm. one of them could be a math professor or something along that line. And there was talk at, at I think it was in the in the older days of this country where you'd have not necessarily groups of teachers, but you'd have somebody who did science for a living, who was the one who was actually teaching science in a school rather than rather than what we have now, where the teacher has to be versed at least somewhat in almost everything, or they're a science teacher in a classroom or the seven period day or something like that, where you're just teaching a base level rather than learning from somebody who is brilliant and experienced in it. And that's what they do all day, every day, except for teaching. Um, Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if it would be better in that sense that they students would actually be learning something if they were learning from somebody who wasn't a teacher. Not to say I don't love teachers. I think teachers are great people. 
and things like that. I just don't know. I, I wonder if it would be better what we have with scientific education, if there was at least some scientists or physicists or mathematicians or what have you invested in K through 12 mm. education and helping to teach those classes rather than relying on teachers who are more invested, it seems now in social justice than, than in actually teaching science. Well, I mean, if, if the universities weren't so screwed, we could set up some sort of AmeriCorps <laughs> where, you know, you get uh, your student loans are, diminished and i know they have this specifically for teachers but your student loans can be diminished for you uh just mm -hmm. bringing your knowledge that you did into a local community uh, i know they they run that to try to get uh, they target different kind of zones to to boost yeah. up uh you know that and stuff but there there can be societal uh incentives i guess i would hope to so. facilitate the uh the passing on of knowledge and then you know if you can convince these nerdy scientists who are not necessarily the best people pe people all the time they get to learn some some skills maybe some human skills i'm not i'm not saying you know uh scientists aren't people people but i am saying that children are difficult and and <laughs> and, and, and it's a learning process to be able to teach them well yeah that that is very true in teaching undergrads i have taught undergrads before myself oh, yeah. and just like i'm i'm not actually a teacher i'm a research scientist so it's like i'm not ever going to have tenure or anything like that so it ought to be mm -hmm. ought to be interesting career-wise for me going down the road but yeah. <laughs> we can start a micro school I don't know these online schools. I know there's there's uh, there's downsides to it, but there's uh, emerging market for kind of some sort of roving tutor, tutor or some sort of tutorial program with with specific input from the person, and that's kind of it, it's all mitigated through virtual space. But it's still you can assemble some sort of personal one on one interaction, get a little bit of money for that, and provide uh, tools for society. Uh, you know, do do you think about that um, with your YouTube channel and your other products, your content? Uh, is there stuff that's specifically educational geared, uh, and and other stuff more commentary geared? Like, what's the spread of content that you create, and wh where's your intentionality behind that, or how you set up, design it, and then going forward, where do you mm -hmm. want to be headed? So, I mean, at the start, I was just trying to figure out what the heck I was doing. So there wasn't really too much intentionality right at the start with exactly what I was focusing on. But in in the last year, I've honed it in, in that there's an educational aspect to it in that introduced things like the concepts that we've talked about with the normative principles of what science is and what have you. And it speaks to how bad our education system is that I didn't even know what they were until five years after I got my PhD. So... <laughs> just speaks to how bad that is um education system there but talking about some of those philosophical things with science there's some educational videos on that um there's a lot of commentary there about these kinds of things going on in science and what i think of them and what we should do to push back on that encouraging some of my fellow scientists who do see it and have told me they have seen it um that this is great thank you i know what to do now when i see it show up in my own in my own um, fields. And then lately what I've gotten to do is as what I call the Thursday night review, where I just sit down and review a study of interest to me. And part of me, do, the reason for me doing it on camera is I give folks a sense, not just the scientists who do it all day, every day and what have you, and therefore can critique what I'm critiquing or critique me critiquing. Is that a good way to say it? Um, <laughs> Organized skepticism. Let's just call it that. There we go. Um, <laughs> 
but it gives folks who are not versed in reading scientific studies a sense of what do I look for as a scientist when I'm judging the quality of a study and whether or not its conclusions are valid in particular. It's just like the um, there was one I did last week, actually, that was on um, it was a study in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And it was intersectional inequalities in science was the name of the article, which <clears throat> was all sorts of interesting <laughs> You kind of knew what was going to be in there from those words, yeah. I assume. Yeah, well, it was fascinating too. because it was a that article was a letter perfect example, which is why I chose it, of why <laughs> one should always look at the methods section of a study and how it was done. Because if the methods are done correctly, then the conclusions can be well justified, perhaps, even if you completely disagree with the conclusions. But when the methods are done poorly, then that's not a very well justified conclusion. And what it was that caught my attention was the study framed in that they were talking about all of science. So think of all of your different disciplines of science that you can think of, be it from social sciences or physical sciences. But the data they actually looked at and did analysis on for the vast majority of the paper, they had one figure that looked at every discipline that they had, which included the arts for some reason. Um, <laughs> every, mm -hmm. every other figure, though, was about two other disciplines, social sciences and health. And that was it. And so they were attempting to make broad conclusions about look at all these things that that these different groups, all these disparities that everybody faces. Um, but they were making that conclusion saying all of science, but their methods were about social sciences and health. And that's all they looked at. Mm -hmm. um, the additional thing, of course, is they also you can also start picking out logical fallacies in some of these articles, because in the conclusions and in the early introduction of the article they went well disparity therefore discrimination which following coleman hughes he's put it quite nicely that's the dis disparity fallacy where you assume every disparity is the result of discrimination but you can't prove that just looking at the data and saying hey look there's a difference we see here well why is the difference there is the question mm -hmm. so yeah. that was a good study to rip apart well, <laughs> shouldn't say it that way to review and to um, to talk with folks about um, in my head. I'm always ripping studies apart. And it's like when I do peer review, yeah. my, my remarks in the in the margins might be a little nasty until I go right up the peer review. But <laughs> yeah, but it's like, no, the other one this week was actually on the um, the rise and fall of rationality in language, which was also in the um, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That was a much better done paper. Um and actually relates a lot to what we see in the broader culture with with um, wokeness for the colloquial and postmodernism, because they basically are able to show that in the, the frequency of 5000 or more commonly used English words, <clears throat> or at least mostly commonly used English words, has changed over time. So then words that we associate more with rational thinking and rationality um, increased from 1850 the frequency of those words increased from 1850 to about 1980 topped out and then started going down again with a rather precipitous decline in 2007 starting in 2007 to 2019 is where they cut off their study data so they haven't gone into 2020 or 2021 yet but well i mean i'm sure they covered this but this is my first counter to that or clarifying question is sure. that if you look at the data from 1850 to 1980 what where's your data is probably going to be published books so they're already gate kept right mm -hmm. this is gate kept uh 
so, so your sample pool is already selected. Mm-hmm. And now with the internet, you have the plebs. Now we get to see how the plebs do things, right? <laughs> and and this is how the plebs the plebs aren't rational and they never were rational. That doesn't mean that, you know, they were less rational or more rational before mm-hmm. the internet. So I don't know if they touched on that or they if did. the influx they actually, of data. Um, they speculated a lot in the end of the article about why they think that pattern shows. And you actually see the opposite in the sort of the intuitive emotion words where they were going down until 1980 until you got to 1980 and started going back up. So there's actually the opposite curve there. So um, they did speculate a lot on why they thought that was the case, be it the rise of social media or the incoming of the internet. And they thought the 2007 thing might've had to do with the economic crash then and the disillusion with the system that came about during that time. But they remarked, well, we didn't see the same thing in the 1930s with the great depression but then again, you probably didn't in the 1930s because there was no social media in the 1930s to magnify everything. So they speculated a lot, but it was an interesting observable pattern. Um, mm. I, in part, am kind of curious because I, I think of 1980s and I again think of that's when 1970s is when you had the real rise of postmodernist thought and academia get started. So finally, which starting. was pseudo rational well, to now? begin with. It was pseudo-rational. So it used a lot of technical mm. terms that were codes for emotional mm. reasonings. I would, I, I think somebody could argue that. That's true. I think so, too, actually. But I get into that on my channel and those kinds of reviews to help others see this is how you should look through a study and the kinds of questions you should ask, um, in part because... <laughs> There's a lot of things that get through peer review that perhaps shouldn't um, at this point. And the only problem with it is that like we, we've idolized science so much. And it's a phrase I hate. I hate the phrase, believe the science. I hate that phrase passionately <laughs> um, because science is not a belief system. But anyway, thank you very much. Um, but we've idolized it so much that... You know, when you see it's a peer reviewed study or it's a study was done or something like that, it has the veneer of authority and folks can just point to this study and say, well, this study says this. So that's why we're doing it. But that doesn't say anything now because you're not necessarily critiquing the study to say something. Was that study well done? Does it actually have its conclusions be justified? And therefore, are you then justified in using it to push this particular program or that particular program or policy or any number of different things? And that needs to be questioned carefully if you're going to be, particularly with doing policies that may have a whole lot of impact on a whole lot of people. That would be my concerns. Like, mm-hmm. don't do something based upon a study that's actually crap because it's going to end badly for everybody. <laughs> Unless it's accidentally the good kind of crap and grows a beautiful flower. Well, that, 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 yeah, that could happen too, but it's just... <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really, really difficult, especially when um, during uh, the time of COVID and on life on social media, it's everybody's got 20 studies to make their 20 different points and you're like, well, I, 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 don't, know. I don't know how my, my illiteracy is causing this whole thing to look like a complete mess. I don't know who to believe. I know that some people are jerks. That's about all I know. <laughs> you know, so, and I don't trust the system. That's all I know. But that doesn't mean that, mm-hmm. that that's a positive value. Distrust is not a positive value. So it's just, uh, yeah. No. And I mean, there's a lot of studies that are well done and they'll have, They'll be competing with each other because one study that's well done will say, 
will say something one way and the other one that's also well done will say something the other way and they may be looking at the same data and interpreted it differently and that's a normal thing to see in any scientific discipline you'll see people arguing it with each other on on in different journals i mean the journals do have their own comment and reply section where you can like have an article have somebody comment on the article in peer-reviewed fashion right there and have somebody reply to the comment and sometimes they go back and forth for a while and it's humorous to watch um <laughs> but you also then have the things that are studies, for lack of a better word, and I put that in quotes because it's like um, one of the ones that I, when I started doing the Thursday review section, I started with one where it was quite obvious that had it been a serious job in peer review, that article never would have been published because it was basically about how to get critical race theory embedded in a public school. That was pretty much all the article was saying and it was counter narrative as strategy and i forget the rest of the title but it, this whole idea of counter narrative whereby you just keep pressing and pushing on this particular narrative associated with critical race theory and they talked in the article and i covered this in the video on it about strategies to silence anybody who disagrees openly in the article <laughs> i'm just like how the heck did this get through peer review? It was the International Journal of Qualitative Education Studies, which hmm. qualitative. <laughs> that's the that's the ping mm -hmm. right there for me. But that's a that's an example of what I refer to as study in air quotes because it's, it's like that's not really a study. That's an activist guidebook for how to do something. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it never should have been published there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so many different uh, journals now are captured i mean uh scientific american on down uh and it, it's a it's a sad and potentially dangerous um moment in in the history of science or the history of western education mm -hmm. but it's a great opportunity for people like you to not just speak out and stand up but actually show people teach people break free from the the hallowed halls and bring the information to the public yeah, yeah no i <laughs> It's funny because I do feel really weird sometimes in that, you know, you're a conservative politically. You're also a climate scientist. You work in academia. How many different contradictions can I have in one person at this point <laughs> just, to, just to be there? And it's just like you don't I don't feel like the, like one of the academics most of the time. I, I get on more so with folks who are outside of academia than the ones that I do within mm -hmm. academia, with with the exception of my close co-workers. A bunch of them are good mm -hmm. friends, but it's just. Mm -hmm. A, a lot of academics don't necessarily like me. <laughs> well, maybe you're resilient. Maybe you don't want to be liked by them. Maybe they don't deserve. I, maybe not. I yeah. don't know at this point, but it's certainly interesting. And just like, hmm. I guess, I guess the, the thing about academia that bothers me right now is that they have gone so hard in the direction with the DEI stuff in particular of not really wanting to hear from any particular viewpoint. And in the last two years, there's been report after report after report that shows very definitively that students and staff and faculty who are more right-leaning are working in a hostile work environment or either, or, or just are utterly scared of actually saying what they think. Um, and admittedly, I've been there myself. I've done that, had that sentiment. It's like, if I speak up and say something right now, am I going to lose my job? Hmm. And it's been something I've been afraid of, but, you know, I, I've felt a lot more, I, I guess, felt a lot better about myself when I've been honest with myself and actually saying, hey, this crap is wrong and here's why. <laughs> and sometimes 
it's firmly but politely pushing back on some of these things that I've found success with. And admittedly, in my own office and my own supervisor, working with my own supervisor and things like that, I've had some demonstrable success in the last few months saying, look, this stuff is wrong. Here's X, Y, Z reason why. Here's the lawsuits you want to avoid happening that are germane to this whole topic. It was like, I don't think this is a good idea. And gotten found and found that my supervisor and leadership of our center where I work at my university is actually quite responsive to that. And I'm, I'm not going to mention where exactly I work right now. Yeah. That's, that's not well, good. Thank God for common sense is uh, alive <laughs> and well somewhere. I know. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a never ending. It's never going to be an ending argument over some of these things. It's like one mm-hmm. victory for now at least, but, yeah. but, um, well, well, speaking of anonymity, what the heck does your YouTube channel name mean? Shio <laughs> Sophia, yeah. Shio <laughs> Sophia, where did you get that? <laughs> so I drew it from um, the root words for two of my favorite things, science and philosophy. Um, Shio is, so science is drawn from the Latin shire, which is the verb to know, actually. Um, and shio is the participle of that. And it just literally means no, like I know or you know. Um, Sophia is one of the two Greek words that forms uh, philosophy. Um, Sophilos is the first word, which means love of in English, roughly. But Sophia can either be translated as knowledge or wisdom. I prefer the latter definition. So if you want to take the full archaic definition of my thing in both Latin and Greek, it would be no wisdom. Mm. So, but that's where it came from. I like the two, like the two uh, things. I, I just didn't want to say science and philosophy. That was going to be a boring yeah, no, no, channel. No, no. <laughs> yeah, this, this, has got, this has got some sex appeal to it, at least some Greek appeal to it. Nice. You know? <laughs> um, and final question, we can wrap up and have a little uh, after, after interview uh, chat, but what's the wooist belief that you have what's the wooist uh, belief well, i mean your science and a conservative i guess is pretty woo but is there something that that you allow yourself um uh to, I, I and i'm sorry if it's embarrassing you don't have to answer this but like you like tarot readings you, you look at like astrology charts <laughs> you just you like that it's just something just something out there what's the most out there thing that you indulge in uh that, that gives you meaning that 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 gives you human meaning outside of science or do you not need that no, I, I am also a Roman Catholic, so I do very much enjoy going to church and religious practice. And and for a lot mm-hmm. of us as Catholics, the the belief that the Holy Spirit speaks to you when you're in the in the quiet is not unheard of. And yeah, you know, you've had some of those weird moments of intuition where like, okay, this happened. Maybe what do I do with this? And you get an get an inkling all of a sudden, this is what I should do. So in the in the belief system that's saying something of the spirit holy spirit is telling you a little bit of something that you should do in this situation um so that's for me that gives a lot of meaning to my life and there's been a lot of things that i've overcome from from family troubles and illness and 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 the like that have been more so based on my catholic rather than any sort of scientific understanding and that's not unheard of because a lot of the great scientists in history were also very religious people at the same time. So um, I don't know if it's wooey as much. As yeah, I, yeah, no, like that. that was a perfect uh, segue to um, to that topic. I wonder if you'll you'll explore that, do a religion and science thing, or uh, maybe join me or, or have a discussion uh, with somebody else about uh, the interplay between religion mm-hmm. and science and how they can get along. Mm-hmm. And I know that. Uh, 
Catholicism has a lot of uh, mm. put a lot of put a lot puts a lot of stock in science. It, it does, despite, although you know, that's Galileo not always been over its history. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, exactly. There's like what the imprisonment of Galileo for how long? Because he said the uh, the Earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. There, was, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I want to say it was Pope John Paul II who finally apologized to Galileo formally on behalf of the Church or something like that. That was so long ago. <laughs> I know that that was very long after Galileo's death when the Catholic Church finally apologized and said, no, you were actually I right. mean, <laughs> when, there's, when you're talking about immortal souls, you know, like, what, what's what's a couple of centuries, you know? Sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you, what, the Catholic Church put Galileo under house arrest because he said the Earth revolves around the sun. He, he was living around. in, like, a, in a villa or something. It was really cushy. I mean. <laughs> But no, actually, I do want to get into that somewhat, not just the religious aspect of, of um, Catholicism or Christianity and Islam and, and what have you and how that interplays with science. Because I actually talked about it early on in my channel. Some of the foundational things of science came from the golden age of Islam, like the concept of empiricism. But the other thing now is there's a very prominent discussion of framing science as a Western way of knowing. Um, and so getting into those concepts of ways of knowing and and the uh, idea of what are we going to do when two of those ways of knowing come into conflict with each other um, in discussion of that, because that is really where science comes into its own or some kind of logic and philosophical practice of sorting out who's got the truth. Um, mm -hmm. Although then again, if you look at postmodernists, they don't necessarily think the truth exists at all, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they got power going for them until they expend it. That's the problem with postmodernist critical social justice is that it's very, it's very motivated. It can infiltrate. It cannot produce anything good. And it can't help but just destroy and destroy and destroy. There's no positive principle in there. And so what do you counter that with? Liberalism or some sort of pre-liberal um, pre framework that then supports liberalism? And I, I kind of tend to think that, that you need to have a, a social religious framework in order for liberalism to actually work because it needs to mm -hmm. be – operated by people of a certain character and you have to foster that character yeah people need um people need their meaning people need meaning in their lives and it's oh, like yeah. sometimes secular society really doesn't provide that meaning not to say people can't find meaning from no. that but yeah no. but um no. yeah no there's yeah there's a lot of different things i mean I, I about once a year i have brett weinstein on my channel you know because we have the same origin story and I was kind of poking, like, well, where does your meaning come from? Where does your meaning come from? Yeah, because he's Mr. Science and stuff. And, like, I was, like, like asking those questions and getting into that because uh, more often than not, we revert to poetry when we get to the to that level of the discussion. Mm. And, and it's no longer – you can just feel the, the tenor of the discussion change from the rational mind into the pre-rational mind. And there's a relationship to that which – Postmodern critical social justice exploits. Yeah. It exploits the pre-rational. Oh, yeah. And um, doesn't put it in a good relation to the rational. So, CEO Sophia, you're brilliant. I'm glad that I found you. Somebody recommended you on my channel, and I checked you out, and I was like, whoa, somebody's feeding my brain. This feels really good. So your content is really wholesome and educing. It, like, it, it educes me. So I'm, I'm glad to, to be able to, like... Uh, Chinwag with you on I'm a glad Saturday to hear afternoon. That. I mean, I'm glad this was a great conversation. I'm happy, happy to. I'm just thrilled you invited me. It's just like, holy crap, it's Benjamin Boyce. <laughs> ah, what do I do? <laughs>
<laughs> so plug your stuff. So you got a YouTube channel. You got a, a locals community. Is I that do how indeed. you operate? So yes, yeah, Shio Sophia on locals. Um, S C I O S O P H I A for the spelling of it. If you go look for it. Um, so I uh, right now I'm running on a regular schedule, trying to do three videos a week um, in the morning, but also the Thursday evening review. And it's after the Thursday evening review, I go on a live chat on my locals. Um, Exclusively with local supporters talking about the article and anything else that comes up related off of that, we go for about an hour. Um, and then also for supporters, we started. I started adding the bit called Philosophical Friday, um, just to add some add some fun little philosophical bits of what I'm thinking about and invite folks to comment on it. Um, and we're going to be adding more. It's a, it's a small community right now, but I'm I'm trying to grow it out a bit because I think this having these kinds of conversations and talking about what science is and isn't and what I'd really love to do is if there's any any of them out there is just like get a bunch of scientists in the community, get a bunch of regular old folks in the strange to say it that way, but regular old folks in the community and um, be able and to then a bunch them. of weirdos with degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and be able to get into some get everybody together on a zoom call and let folks ask each other questions about you know what is what do you what do you think of this about science what do you think of that about science and actually be able to have some of those fun discussions rather than everybody screaming on the internet <laughs> no I, I run it's not it's not true that everybody screams on the internet i mean my channel's uh here and we're just conversating. This is a great channel you've got. So we're just we're just chilling. Um, but but yeah, we, we talk about people who scream, you know, but we still don't <laughs> scream about them. Mm-hmm, hopefully, but it's, let's see. So it's on locals. It's shiosofia.locals.com. It's the same spelling as the YouTube, and it's also mm-hmm. um, unfortunately I couldn't get the same spelling on Twitter. So it's like shio underscore Sophia on Twitter. <laughs> and are how long are your episodes on YouTube? And are, do you have any plans on uh, just taking the audio and putting them on a podcast for people who want to listen on the go? You know, I haven't thought about doing that yet, but I would actually consider I'd be glad to do that and, and start podcasting somewhere. Um, generally, I try to keep the shorter ones in the mornings on, on Tuesday, thir- um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, or when I put those up in the mornings on YouTube. I keep those under half an hour, so they're usually hopefully easily listening to people. I know I've gotten some comments that I run a little long sometimes when I get excited about something. So I try to <laughs> try to keep them a little shorter. Um, the Thursday reviews are longer because it's actually sitting down looking at a study. So usually those top out at right about an hour. But um, other than Perfect that, they're, they're pretty, they're try to keep them generally short. <laughs> well, it's great stuff. So um, thanks again for showing up. And uh, why don't you say goodbye to the audience? Bye everybody. I hope you stay curious. Oh yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Do you end every episode? Mm-hmm. With I just that? Stay curious, my friends. <laughs>